Let's get into Romans. We just sang the song, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son, the Holy Spirit. I believe in the resurrection, right? I mean, we're, we're saying all these statements of faith. Romans is a book, a letter written to Christians in Rome, and it is one of the most comprehensive statements of faith. And Paul writes it to these believers who he's going to be visiting, and he gives this incredible explanation of what the gospel is. And uh, we started last week. We're going to be again in the first 17 verses of Romans. So if you're turning there, we'll start in Romans chapter 1. I'm just going to go ahead and quote that. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. First, I thank my God for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that... I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is a power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We talked last week uh, about Paul, getting to know who Paul was, and now we're going to come and start talking about just the content and the setup of this letter. And Paul starts off very quickly saying, this is Paul, and this is what I'm going to talk about. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand. You're going to see the gospel come in several times in these 17 verses, and then it really stops. But what he's doing is he's saying, look, I'm going to write you a letter about what the gospel is. How confident are you right now that you could say to someone five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, what the gospel is? Like, You know the core elements, you know the themes, you know the whole point of this thing and the characters and how this all works. When I say that word gospel, is that something that's like, wow, that's one of those Bible words that, you know, they say up front, but I really don't know, or you've got a pretty good grasp? Yeah, I could could do that. Often we identify with the gospel 
first in that journey as a personal story of salvation, which is the gospel. And God loves me and, you know, died for me, and that's how we understand the gospel. But as Paul starts this thing, it's interesting what he starts with. And that's a piece of the gospel. It's not all the gospel. And as we go through today, we're not going to cover the entire gospel. Um, it's, we don't have the time to do that given what we're doing here in this passage. But hopefully as we go through this, we'll start to get a picture of what the gospel is about. And so Paul starts with this Statement. He says, the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. He sets up the gospel. He says, look, this thing is, this thing's pretty big. It's, it's not just that just happened here. Jesus, this guy who lived, this thing stretches all the way back. And if you read through Romans, you'll find that Paul either quotes, alludes to, refers to 74 different passages in the Old Testament. He quotes 19 of the 39 books of the Old Testament in this letter to the Romans. And, and what it shows, and, and he goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, and goes from Genesis and, and some of those books into the law of Moses, and you got Deuteronomy and Leviticus in there, and, and then he goes on and does more history books, and then he gets into the, the books of poetry and Psalms, and then he goes on in the book of the prophets, and he's quoting from all of these different authors, all of these different books throughout the history of God's movement in the world. And it's all to point to this idea that this thing has been going on all along. The gospel was there before this world started, and it has been rolling along as history has passed. He goes all the way back to Genesis, and he's big on Genesis, and, and we'll talk about that. And, and, and he goes and he refers, then he says, it's in the Holy Scriptures, they've prophesied this, and there's all these different scriptures and passages that point towards God, moving history towards this moment, Jesus. He quotes David, and, and it's interesting, he goes on to give several titles, not all the titles, there's so many titles Christ has or Jesus has, but there's four in this one. He says, first of all, he's a descendant of David. Well, what does that mean? Well, in 2 Corinthians, or not 2 Corinthians, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives his promise to King David. There will be an eternal line of kings through your family line. And so when he says the descendant of David, it actually means the human nature. The word in the Greek is actually spermatos. Literally the seed of David it will, be, it will be the everlasting line. And, and he's saying here that Jesus is from that line. He has the authority, the right to claim this kingdom that's promised that will be everlasting. It's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is, who, uh, let me see, I'll just refer to this prophet of the Holy Spirit regarding his son, his human nature, sin is David. And, and understand human. He, he's not just, like, it's not just God. He's fully human. He's a man. Suffered and died, uh, sympathized with us, went through life. So you have this human nature, a, a, a descendant of David, and then he's declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead through the, the spirit of holiness. And so you've got this other title, son of God. So he's fully God. 
And it starts off with the son, the son who is declared by the Holy Spirit to be the son. And so you have, the, you know, we believe in this, we just said it, that it's triune God. We believe in God the Father, we believe in God the Son, and God the Spirit. Well, he is the Son of God, and he was declared, it seems kind of weird because it, it, it feels like the Holy Spirit was the one who actually said, no, now you are God, but that's not the sequence. He was, he is the Son of God. When he came here to earth, crucified, resurrected, the Holy Spirit declared a new title to him because by rights of his resurrection to be the, the Messiah, to fulfill that title. The Son of God coming to earth and, and then coming and being at the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who declared that and it's this new life that Christ demonstrates of which never had happened before. It's a whole new way of living where the Holy Spirit would actually indwell someone. Paul talks about a new Adam, like the old Adam and now Christ is the new Adam, the first one on a new line of people who would actually be able to live having God in them. And the Holy Spirit was able to say he lived this perfect life. He is the Son of God. His resurrection from the dead, the acceptance of the sacrifice is proof of that. Descendant of David, the son of God, truly God. Jesus Christ, this word Messiah, Christ, is another title. The word Christ, Messiah, same thing. And that's something that was prophesied, and we'll see that as he goes through Romans, is the idea that he has the title of Savior of the world. That's one of Christ's titles it's part of the gospel another piece of or another title of jesus is also this idea of lord and and to, to understand lord you have to understand it's a kingdom you know who what lord doesn't have something to rule over a kingdom to rule over and christ is a lord or the lord who has the kingdom and what's interesting is as you read through Christ's life in the, in the Gospels, which is ironic, if we're talking about the Gospel of God, if you're new to kind of Christianity, you're trying to follow Christ, the Bible is split up into two sections, an Old Testament and a New Testament. The New Testament starts with the life of Christ. The first four books are very similar accounts of Christ's life. Sometimes there's different stories. Often they would overlap as well. And they're called the Gospels, which is the good news. So it's the story of Jesus when they quoted Jesus in his teachings, he only mentioned the gospel or the good news 14 times in those four books as they recorded it. What's interesting is that he mentions the kingdom of God, which is the good news he's talking about, but he talks a lot about the kingdom of God over 120 times. He talks about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come. It's here. It's here. This is how you get in. This is how people live in the kingdom of God. This is what my kingdom is about. And as he starts to talk more and more about the kingdom, all of a sudden this starts to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, now you've got God, the son of God. Now you've got this prophecy from eons past, right? Now, now you've got this Messiah, Savior of the world. You've got this Lord kingdom is all the galaxy, everything in it. And all of a sudden, this whole gospel that seems such like a little personal salvation, the more you get into it, the more you study it, you realize, oh, it's kind of a bummer, but we're not the center. Wah, wah, 
It's what happens. You start to discover Jesus and his titles and who he is, and you realize, oh, he's the center. He's the point. But it so feels like I'm the point. It feels like you're the point, right? Like he loved me. The gospel is about this good news of a Lord, a descendant of David, of an eternal kingdom, right? Of a Messiah who's come to save the world. It is about him. That's the gospel and how Paul starts it. And it's interesting. He's done this for 25 years. He doesn't mess around anymore. He's been in in churches. He's planted churches. He's seen them go sideways and start teaching all kinds of things. And he starts this letter, and he's just up front. This is what it's about, y'all. This is what I'm coming. This is the gospel. This is Jesus. Let's just get this out in the open. Let's make sure we got the, land, the line right here. Everybody cool with this? Because I'm coming in a couple of weeks, and we could talk about this if you disagree with this, but I'm a 10 on this. I'm a 10 on Jesus. He puts it out there and lets everybody know. And then, after making Jesus the center of it all, he goes on to say, and you also were among those who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. And this is where we get to be in the middle. But not because we are the point of it all, but because he says, I want you to be with me in the middle. And this is where he actually cares about you. And he cares about me. He actually knows your name. He, he knows everything about you, every hair on your head. And, and that's where we, we cross the line. We think it's about us. No, it's not about us. It's about him and how much he loves us and wants to pull us into the center so we can worship him and know him and live for him. But never flip that and think it's about us. But it is amazing when you think about this incredible God who actually knows you. Like, you really matter to him. And in this world where people wrestle with that and whether anybody knows them and anybody thinks they matter, self-worth, self-image, does anybody remember me? Those kind of things. And the gospel is this great story of this incredible God who, who knows you and me. And he goes on from there, and he says this about the gospel later on. He talks about this down in verse 14. I'm obligated, you know, both the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel. I, I've got to preach the gospel to people. I've got to go and I've got to talk about the gospel. And he goes on to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Shame is an interesting word, isn't it? That, I mean, the one he uses. And if you go and you read the book of Acts, which is, that's right after those first four books, so it's the fifth book in the Bible. Acts is the story of the history of the church and how it got started. And, and there's all these stories of Paul experiencing shame on pretty intense levels. I mean, shame is this, this thing they, that culture wants you to feel Sometimes we feel it because we're, we're guilty of sin, and that's an appropriate shame, and, and we confess that, and it moves us, but there's a shame that's in an inappropriate, that's, that's unfounded. 
Shame is this pressure society would put on us or others would put on us to be, in a sense, regretful, remorseful for believing something, acting a certain way. And Paul says, I am not ashamed, and yet in every town he was beaten, or not every town, but in towns he was beaten, in towns he was chased out, in towns he was oppressed, he was arrested. All of these different things, all these forms of shame coming on him, stop talking, stop talking about this, quit it. So Paul felt all this shame, or all the shame was on him, but yet he never owned that shame. Which is interesting. I was reading an article that quoted Alistair Begg, who's uh, as our uh, technician in the back said, he's not Irish, he is Scottish, right? Thank you, says a fellow Scotsman back there. Um, he's a famous pastor up uh, off of Cleveland, uh, talks with that accent, sounds way better than I do. Um, he talked about shame, and he said in the 60s, shame was this idea of and the culture of shame on you for believing the gospel was true like how can you believe that's true shame on you for even believing that's true and then it kind of morphed through the 90s he said and and it became the cultural shame on christian was shame on you for even believing in truth and then he said in the 2000s it's now shame on you for believing others are wrong and not agreeing with them. And how arrogant and intolerant of you. That, that's the big weapon of shame in our culture, right? To be accused of being intolerant. To be accused of being unloving and arrogant. Shame is forever an undesired companion in the life of a Christian. If you are going to identify with the gospel of God, you will experience shame put on you. Now, whether you own that, whether I own that, is another story, but we will encounter shame. Barna did some research as a study group guy, or he's a big famous statistician, and he did a, a group. The question was, uh, do you agree with this statement? I personally have a responsibility to tell other people my religious beliefs. So of the adults who agree, and he's surveying Christians here, uh, the, those who were evangelical would say, yes, 100% across the board, I have a responsibility to tell other people about my religious beliefs. Mainline churches, what are those? Those are like um, Presbyterian, Methodist, along those lines. 54% say, I have a responsibility. Non-mainline, 71%. Catholic, 34%. Protestant, 64%. Now, of those, they went on to survey, well, then, how many of you have actually shared your beliefs, the gospel, whatever? So during the past 12 months, I have explained my religious beliefs to someone else who had different beliefs and hoped they might accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Evangelicals, although 100% of them say I should do this, only 69% had said they did it within the last year. It's interesting. Catholics, the 34% that said they should do it, 33% did it. How about that? There's something to that. Where, look, if that's what I got to do, 
I better go do it. And there's, a, there's something going on with the 30% of the evangelicals that that means, and I don't know how it looks here, but around one, I mean, some of you are visitors, some of you are like, I'm not a Christian, don't count me on this, so I get that. You're, you're trying to figure this whole thing out, but around every third person hasn't really shared their faith in the last 12 months. Isn't that interesting? Something like that, every third, three and a half. I think, I think that pressure of culture, the shame involved in culture is much bigger than what we estimate. I think it is. I don't know who is and who isn't. I really don't want to know. It's not up to me to know. It's not up to somebody else to know. But here's a thought. God might want you to share with someone else in this room how you're doing on this and why. That's how God does these things. Just using our works as a witness at some point becomes a cop-out. You, you got to talk about Jesus at some point. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. Jesus, it says in Hebrews, he despised the shame. Despised the shame of capital punishment. Ultimately, it was a cross, the shame of the cross, right? You want to talk about the worst form of shame, you don't want to be that. And Jesus like, has contempt for the shame this world would give. Why? I love what Paul says here. Now, Jesus knew why, and Paul writes why, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's interesting, Paul doesn't write, I'm not ashamed because I've learned to develop thick skin over the years. And you should too. You should just get tougher skin. I've learned not to be ashamed and I just drown it out or ignore it. I am not ashamed because I've made a vow and I'm going to keep it. Paul doesn't say that. Paul just says, I know. I know the power of God, the saving power of God, and that's why I'm not ashamed. Well, that's a different thing to think about. I think sometimes we just make these vows, I don't want to be ashamed anymore. I'm not going to be ashamed, I'm just going to do it. That, that's, that's why Paul doesn't do that. Paul writes about the saving power of God. What's the saving power of God? I don't know, what's your story? I've read this book, um, and then... Uh, I think I let somebody borrow this book. I don't know if you have my book, but I'd love to have it back. This is my daughter's. Um, I had mine all earmarked and underlined, so it's a great book. I always give away books, and then I never remember who I give them to. Sorry, it's a little story. It has nothing to do with the power of God, obviously. Um, there's a story of Stoyan. 
He's over in Russia. He was 13 years old. Uh, World War II had just ended. He's telling the story when he's in his 60s. Um, he's 13 years old. His father was a pastor, Protestant pastor, and immediately after the war was over, the communists started to go around arresting uh, these pastors and, and Christians. And so his dad was arrested and put into, uh, the secret police took him to this place. Nobody knew where it was in the town. And uh, they didn't talk to him for like nine months. Didn't even know where he was. And they finally found out that uh, he was in prison over here and they were going to ship him out. And so, um, and they found out while he was in those nine months, the psychological torture, the emotional torture that was going on was very severe, as well as the physical. It wasn't nearly as severe as the psychological, but uh, every day in those nine months, his prison guard would bring a piece of toast in, and he would put poop on it and make that pastor eat it every morning. And they would be harassing him. Just, just renounce your faith. Renounce your faith, and you can be free wouldn't do it. When they saw him nine months later, they didn't even recognize him. His son, Stoyan, was there with his mom, and they were looking around, and, and they never saw him. All these other, it was out on this field, and there were all these other political prisoners there, and they were looking for his dad, and, and they could never find him. And finally, a guard actually walked him out because he, he didn't have the strength. He'd lost all this weight. They didn't even recognize him. The only way he recognized his dad was his blue eyes. And he goes up to his dad, who he's not going to see. He doesn't know when he's going to see again, but it's because they're taking him off in the middle of some prison camp out in the middle of nowhere. Or whatever. And uh, he said, I just remember holding on to my dad's face and saying, I'm so proud of you, dad. So his father gets taken. And then a short while after that, the secret police come in the middle of the night, tell his mom, you have one hour to pack two suitcases per, per family member, so that's Stoyan, and he's got three other brothers, so there's five of them. You have an, one hour to pack. We are relocating you, and it was some gypsy village they discovered out in the middle of nowhere. They didn't know anybody, didn't know where this was, they just were on a train, and they were relocated, lost everything. And he said, I remember getting, and he's 13 years old, and all his brothers were younger. And he said, I remember being on the train, and my little brothers are crying. And my mom pulls us all together and just says, we have to trust that God will take care of us. And she starts to sing this hymn on the train. Sixty years later, he remembers his mom singing that hymn. All we can do is trust in the saving power of God. And when they get to the train station, of which they don't know no one, there's a stranger there. And the stranger comes up to her and he said, I was, are you, is your husband in prison as a pastor, which is a dangerous thing to ask in that time? And she said, yeah. He says, I was just in a prayer service last night and we were praying and God told us that you were going to be at this station and that you would need help. And so he gives her a bag 
of money, and he says, this is about six worth of uh, a salary that should support you guys. And when you run out, we will give you more. He didn't know her. They didn't know her. That's the saving power of God. Ten years, he's in prison. Ten years, they kept forcing him. Renounce your faith. Be ashamed of your faith. Be ashamed. Renounce it. And he never did. And they eventually released him. It took him a while to find his family because he didn't know where they lived. And he finally found them and was reunited. And he got back together with them. And Stoyan remembers. He got back. And the first Sunday that came around, you know what his dad did? He preached the gospel. He preached. There was a lady in his church um, came up to him a short while after that and said, can you come pray for my son? Now, her son was middle-aged. She was older, older than the 50s, 40s and 50s, it seemed like the impression was. And... Um, He's got diabetes. He just lost his sight. I can't get medication because I can't get around. And so he actually went, Stoyan's father went and got medication and went over to this lady's house. And uh, she pulled him back into the, the bedroom where her son was. And he was back there to pray for her. And when he walked to the room, guess who he saw? The prison guard from the first nine months. His mom was going to his church. And he said, in that moment, his dad talked about in that moment, I saw in a new way the grace of God. He didn't tell him who he was. He didn't make him pay. He didn't walk out. He prayed for him. That's the saving power of God. And when you get around the saving power of God, it is impossible to not talk. And it isn't so much that we have to make a vow that I need to share the gospel. It's that we need to get around God and his power and realize there are people that don't have this. People in line at Kohl's don't have this. I was just talking to someone who relayed a story. A woman literally was falling to pieces in line with strangers because of a tragedy that happened in her life and the bitterness, and she's just overwhelmed. This person ended up just caring and talking to her. How close are you to the saving power of God? Like it, we, all, we can sometimes think it's just done. Like we got saved and we're, it's good. We're good, God. Got it from here, right? The saving power of God isn't just for that one moment when we come to faith. The saving power of God is for our entire life. At what point does he not continue to keep saving us, moving? And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. There's a lot of pressure in our culture a lot of pressure. It's the same pressure Paul had. It is. We just invent new ways. It's the same thing. I was talking to a couple guys. The pressure at work is immense to 
refrain from ever talking about your faith. Absolutely intense. You will lose your job intense. What is that? That's shame. You say, oh, it's coercion, it's all this stuff. I'm like, no, it's, it's been around a long time, guys. Don't buy the lie. It's coercion. Don't buy the lie of this culture. Oh, it's private. Whatever. That's shame. It is. And obviously, we've got to be appropriate. Obviously, we've got to be wise. It's shame. Two thoughts uh, as we close. Jeff and the team, if you guys could come up. You know, we got this class called Alpha, and it's all about creating an environment where people can ask questions. And story after story uh, is out there of people who've come in and just been amazed and, and actually been saved, right? You want to talk about the gospel, have encountered God and said, I want him. I'll follow him. Because it creates an environment where you can talk about things, you can say things that, you, I mean, they come in, they go, I don't, I, I can say that, that's legal. And yeah. And over a process of 10, 11 weeks, people start to thaw out. This is a safe place to invite somebody because nobody's arm gets twisted. It's just a dinner, a talk, and a discussion. And we got a, a boatload of these cards in the back. And, and maybe you just find some people this week. I don't know how many we got left. I don't know. We had like 500 when this, the first service started. But take a couple of these. The, the alpha table is over there. Take a couple of these and, and give them to people. Say, hey, check this class out. We, got, we don't have a problem with leaders. And we've got plenty of leaders on this team. We need to bring people in. And then we'd like to have a problem with leaders like we don't have enough. But uh, we got plenty of room right now. So I invite you to take those out. We're also offering a class sometime here in the next six to eight weeks on how to share your faith and, and what does that look like and just making that something that's more comfortable to you. But these last couple songs, uh, we've, we've planned to just focus back on God and his saving power in Jesus. And I think the desire, the planning of this was just to kind of set these songs out there and get out of the way and let you and Jesus talk and us worship him, the one who's invited us to be in the center of it all, right next to his salvation, his presence.